There's an invisible, uh, powerful force in human nature uh, that is at work in all of us. And if you were to find out, be able to see this force in other people, it might change the way you evaluate uh, the way they do things. Uh, see if you could guess what this, what this force is I'm talking about. Suppose someone had a reputation for being a really generous person. And yet, in all their giving to, this, to their charities and giving money away, you were to discover actually why they were doing it. And they were hoping to gain some political office or something. You realize that even though they were generous and giving on the surface, you go a little bit deeper and you realize, oh, there's something, there's something wrong with why they're doing it. We call that force motive their motive. You know, motives are really important because we could be doing a lot of good things, but doing them for the wrong reasons. That's the importance of, of motives. I wonder if you've ever struggled with right motives. Maybe even coming to church, uh, whether your motives are right or wrong. Uh, maybe in doing something kind for someone, or maybe even in what you say and do. You know, often we're motivated by, by wrong things. Often we're motivated by an attempt to validate ourselves, to justify ourselves, to defend why we did a certain thing, or to bring attention to ourselves, or, or there are all kinds of things that, that are at work in, in motivating us. And the reason why I bring up the topic of motivation is because the question, what's our motive, what's our motivation, it's in the background of the verses that we just read. And the reason why it's important in the context of the flow of this letter is because it's very important what motivates people who have new life in Christ. Like if, if Jesus is, is, has raised you from the dead, as it were, the, dead, uh, the deadness of your trespasses and sins, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, Paul says, you've been raised with him, okay, now why do you do what you do? Like what motivates you? Is it going to be pride? Is it going to be an attempt to defend yourself or to justify yourself or validate yourself? What, what motivates you? Let me put the question this way. What does Christ-motivated living look like? What does Christ-motivated living look like? What does it look like when the life of the resurrected Christ, the death-smashing, life-giving, others-loving Christ, what if his life motivated your life? What would that look like? And again, that's the background question of these three verses. And that is the question that we're going to examine today. And I'm going to treat these verses in, in one unit, even though they are so packed, we potentially could turn each verse into a separate sermon. I'm treating them all together because in treating them together, I think we'll be able to see themes that we would not be able to see otherwise. Specifically, we see that these three verses mention something that belongs to Jesus Christ. Did you pick up on that when I read it? He says, the peace of Christ, in verse 15. I want you to see this and see this thread that is running throughout. He says, the peace of Christ. And then in verse 16, he refers to the word of Christ. And in verse 17, he's referring to the name of the Lord Jesus. And the peace of Christ refers to our relationships among one another... The word of Christ is referring to how we communicate with one another. And the name of Christ is in reference to our everyday activities. So here's the question we want to ask. What does Christ-motivated living look like in our relationships? What does Christ-motivated look, living look like in our communication? And what does the Christ-motivated living look like in our everyday activities? And we're going to divide the sermon into those three parts. Christ-motivated living 
first of all, in our relationships. And what, I'm gonna ho- what I hope you're going to see from the passage is this, that Christ-motivated living is grateful living. Christ-motivated living is grateful living. And that's going to emerge as we unfold this text one by one. First of all, Christ-motivated living in our relationships. So look at verse 15 of chapter 3. Paul says this, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. Christ-motivated living in our relationships. Obviously, God wants his people to be unified. He wants us to be harmonious. In fact, just the previous verse says that above all these things, above all the virtues that Christians are supposed to have put on love which binds everything together in perfect unity. But the problem that we face is how in the world can we get along with each other? I mean, the one answer to this is if people want to get along with each other, then look for common ground, okay? When you meet someone, you want to find out something that you have in common, something you could talk about. Maybe you, you like coffee or a certain sports team and you, you establish that as the, as the common ground. Okay, we find commonality so we can have a relationship. But Paul has already acknowledged in this very chapter that residing within the church, there are people that are so different from each other. He says, if you look a few verses earlier in verse 12, he says, he acknowledges the fact that there are, I'm sorry, in verse 11, that there are Greeks and Jews, that there are circumcised and uncircumcised, that there are barbarians and Scythians and bond and free. What he's saying is this, there are people from all kinds of religious backgrounds, there are people from all kinds of levels of cultural sophistication, barbarians, Scythians. There are people from all kinds of classes of society. There's, there's free people. There's, there's bond slaves. How in the world can people like this find common ground sufficient enough to get along with each other? There's an even bigger problem. And that is that residing within each human heart is something called self-centeredness. And that is that the magnetic pull of our very being is to draw people in toward our interests. And the question is, how in the world can people who are naturally self-centered possibly be gathered together in one body such that they can be described as unified? And if that's going to happen... It cannot happen because of anything that we accomplish. Why? Because if we were managed to get unity, pull ourselves together, it would be something that we would boast in. It would be something we would feel proud about. And yet pride and boasting are the very things that splinter us apart. So so here's the solution. If we are going to have unity and peace and harmony, it's going to have to come not from something that we can accomplish, but that's from something that someone accomplished for us. Which is why Paul says this, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Not the peace of any one individual, not the peace that anybody managed to pull together by our own diplomatic skills, but is the peace of Christ. What is this referring to? Paul isn't bringing up any new topic here. He's referring to something that he's already mentioned earlier in the book of Colossians, which is this, Jesus Christ is the great peacemaker. He is the one that achieved the cosmic reconciliation between sinners on this side of the expanse between God and sinners and and God and he brings them together into a right relationship. That's what Paul was saying in chapter 1 when he says that Jesus Christ is the Lord of creation. He is the one who made everything but he's also the one who reconciles to God those who once were rebels. Jesus is the great peacemaker. Which means that the peace that we can enjoy among each other is not a result of our own achievement. It's a result of something that Jesus has done. And this explains Paul's instruction here. 
Okay, what should motivate us in our relationships? It's not because I have the diplomatic skill to get along with you because I don't. It's because Jesus brought me to peace with God and I'm letting the peace of God inform my relationships with everyone else. That is what's going on here. The same kind of radically selfless peace that Jesus Christ achieved should be the same kind of radically selfless peace that calls the shots in our relationships with each other. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And you know how he brought about this peace? Jesus, the Prince of Peace, gave up his peace with God to bring us to peace with God. Let that peace rule your relationships. Now, this is the only understanding of the peace of Christ that will make sense of the next sentence that says this, and be thankful. To be clear, Paul did not randomly throw that sentence in there as if to say, I need just one more sentence in the letter to Colossians and I'll put it right here and it's going to have something to do with gratitude. No, gratitude and our peace with God are integrally related. Why? Because when we understand that we've been brought to peace with God through Jesus Christ, through the blood of his cross, that is going to result in gratitude. And it is gratitude that marks our relationships with each other. So, Christ-motivated living is grateful living in our relationships. That's verse 15. But also, we're looking not only at Christ-motivated living in our relationships, but also in the way we communicate with each other. Verse 16, okay? So Christ-motivated living in our relationships looks like grateful living in our relationships because of the peace of Christ. But Christ-motivated living in our communication, what does that look like? Obviously, we know that relationships depend on good communication. We have to communicate when, when there are issues at work with the management. Oh, poor communication. When there are issues in a marriage. Oh, what's the problem? Poor communication, right? Communication is, is a, a, a key part of thriving, functioning relationships. So it, it, it makes complete sense that on the heels of our motives in relationships, Paul would talk about communication. And this is what he says in verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The word of Christ. Now, what does this mean here? The word of Christ. The word of Christ is not referring to the Bible, although the Bible is the word of God. The word of Christ is the word about Christ. It is the message of the gospel. So, to, with this understanding, read this like this. Let this story that although you are so dead in your trespasses and sins, God yet loved you so much that he sent his son Jesus to die for you. Let that message have a rich dwelling in your hearts. Give the gospel, that is, this message that Jesus Christ died for sinners to bring you to a right relationship with God, let that give it a home right here. The word about Christ, its residence. The meaning of the word, you see here, let the word of Christ dwell. That, that word for dwell that's translated in English, dwell, it, it, in the original language has the word for house or home in it. Give the gospel a home in your heart. 
You know, home is a very personal place. Your home is decorated in a certain way. You come into your home and, and you ladies, you put the pictures on the walls just the way you, you want it. You arrange the furniture in the way you want it to be arranged. The color of the carpet, the lighting. You know, our houses are such personal places, they even have our own smell. Have you ever come, got left home for a little while for vacation, you come back and you open the front door and as soon as you open the front door, there's that gentle blast of that, that fragrance that is so uniquely you. I, I don't know what makes up that fragrance. Is it maybe the, the casseroles that have just snuggled right into the wallpaper or, or maybe it's the essential oils that you have in your home or, or, or maybe it's the bacon grease that somehow just resides right in the sheetrock and, and you come home and you open the door and there's that gentle blast and you're like, it's just me, it's just us, right? It smells good. Or you go to someone else's house and you're like, I've smelled that before. On them, right? Yeah. It, 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 we carry the fragrance of our, our homes. It's such a personal thing. Your house is so uniquely yours. Let, let me ask you the question. What if? What if you let the message of the gospel have that kind of personalized dwelling in your life? What if you let the fragrance of Jesus' love for you, a sinner, what if you let it just permeate your attitude? What if you let the message that although you were dead in trespasses and sins, God loved you more than you could ever dare hope, what if you let that message just lift up the, the sagging beams in your temperament? What if you let the message that, that Jesus Christ died on the cross, which means that you cannot defend your sin at all because Jesus has already said, it's so bad I had to die for it. What if you let that message invade your home and get rid of all the insects of pride and arrogance? Are you giving the word about Jesus a rich dwelling? Uh, not, not just a dwelling. A rich dwelling. Don't just let the gospel have a foot in the door on Sunday, but let it into your house, the house of your heart. Don't just let this message that, that Jesus came to earth to die for you, don't let it just sleep on the couch, but, but invite it into the whole room. No, open every closet and every drawer and every basement and every nook and cranny of your life and give the message of the gospel a rich Rich dwelling, worthy of a king in your life. Now, the question is, we're talking about motivations. We're talking about what does Christ-motivated living look like when it comes to your communication. When you give the gospel that kind of dwelling, here's what's going to happen. You're going to talk a certain way. It's going to impact the way that you speak to people. And what is it going to do? Look at verse 16. It is going to mean that you're going to want to tell other people about it. When something exciting happens in your life, it, it, it moves your mouth. That's a good thing. Paul says the result of a rich dwelling of the word of Christ, the word about Christ in the lives and hearts of believers is that they start talking to each other about it. They're teaching and they're admonishing one another. Those two words mean they're informing each other about the message of the gospel and they're telling people to act upon the message of the gospel. I mean, and, and as I was studying this, this verse, I got really excited. I mean, the, the Word of God took like, my mind soaring like a kite. I thought, what if our church did this? 
What if every person at Trinity Baptist Church gave the gospel a, such a kingly residence? They started talking about it. That they started teaching and admonishing one another. What would happen? To me, this is very sobering to think... I mean, Paul was not writing to preachers and pastors. He was writing to people. He's writing to barbarians and Scythians and slave and free and mothers and fathers and children and bosses and employees. He was writing, he wasn't just writing to preachers. He was writing to, to everyday people and, and he said this. He said, you need to be teaching each other. Which means this, my friends. This pulpit ministry is necessary, but it is not sufficient for a thriving church. You need, you need to hear preaching, but you also need to be preaching. You need to be speaking the gospel to each other, and here's what I mean. You need to know the gospel so well that when you encounter someone that you see is struggling with bitterness, you can speak to them about the forgiveness of God in Jesus Christ. You need to know the gospel so well and give it such a kingly residence in your life that when you see someone that's being dragged into sin, that you would speak to them of, of the holiness of God and the fact that that is not the lifestyle for which Christ saved you. It, you should let the, the word of Christ have such a, a rich and transformative dwelling in your life that when you see someone sinking into despair, that you would speak to them about the hope of Jesus. That's what it means to teach and admonish one another. Now, communication goes two different directions in this verse. There's a horizontal direction. That's what we've been talking about. But there's also a vertical direction. You see it? There, the horizontal direction, when, when we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, it has this overflow in other people's lives. We, we teach and we admonish and, and we tell, remind each other of the gospel, of what Jesus has done for them. But there's also inescapably, inevitably, a Godward direction. And, and when, so when we speak the gospel to each other, it's admonishing, it's teaching, it's don't forget about who you are in Jesus. What happens when we speak to the gospel to God? What happens when, when the word of Christ is such a rich dwelling in our hearts, it springs forth in what to God? Let me, let, let me ask you this question. When people want to express something that means to them some, so deeply, it's impacted them uh, on such a deep level that mere words will not do. When people are in love, when people are feeling patriotic or really sad, what kind of communication comes out? Music. Uh, because there is no other form of communication that so transcends the rational and speaks right to the emotional. And there is, there is, that, it makes perfect sense then why what follows, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. There's a horizontal dimension of the communication, but then there is also a vertical dimension of the communication and it has to do with music. It's singing. Uh, friends, that's why we sing in this service, isn't it? Because if you're singing sincerely because the gospel is just restructuring the very walls in your life, th then, then you're doing it out of praise to God. Singing to God in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, there are nuances and differences in meaning among those, those terms, but, but the point is this. The central point is this. That when a person is so captivated by the gospel, music comes out. Toward God, we sing our faith. Christians historically have always sung their faith. Why? A faith so beautiful, deserves 
to be put in a beautiful way. A faith so important deserves to be instilled in lyrics that are memorable. A faith so unifying deserves to be sung in harmony. We've always sung our faith. Why? Because when the word about Jesus is given a royal residence, it sounds like music. And there's another theme here. You notice it's with thankfulness in your hearts. Remember at the beginning and throughout I've said that Christ-motivated living is what kind of living? Grateful living? Why? Because we're not singing about anything we've done for ourselves. We're singing about something that we desperately needed and could never earn, and that is the salvation that God has provided us through Jesus Christ. That's why Christ-motivated living in our communication means grateful living, grateful communication. So we have Christ-motivated living in our relationships, Christ-motivated living in our communication, but also, verse 17... See, it's easy for us to assume that Christ can motivate our lives when we're in church or when we're doing spiritual things. We create this divide between the sacred and the secular. Being at church, that's a sacred thing. Filing a report, that's a secular thing. Jesus has something to do with my being at church, but basically whenever I do, whenever I'm driving the truck or whenever I'm, I'm making deliveries or whenever I'm driving my parents to an appointment or whatever, that, that's, that's just a me thing. We've got our sacred lives and we've got our secular lives. And, and what we do with it, this is, this is a Jesus thing and then this is a me thing. With this one statement, Paul says, there is no such distinction. Everything you do, you do in the name of Jesus. What does that even mean? If you grasp this, my friends, this is a transformational concept. This heightens, it means that whatever, if you're a believer in Jesus, like if you're trusting in Jesus, what, no longer do you do anything as a private, isolated individual. Why? Because you've been joined with Christ. That's what we've been looking at in the first parts of, of chapter 3 in which Paul says you've been raised with him. You, you've died with him. You, you're going to be living with him. So nothing you do, you do it as a private, isolated individual. You do all in connection with Jesus Christ. That's why he says whatever you do. It doesn't matter how, how menial you think it is. It could be taking out the trash. It, it could be making a sandwich for your kids for lunch for the next day. It could be changing a diaper. You do it all in connection with who Jesus is. That's what he means with everything you do, do in the name of the Lord Jesus. To try to boil it down to this, it means that no matter how menial the task, you take every task and you say, Jesus, this is for you. Christ-motivated living in everyday activities, Jesus, this is for you. But why do we do that? We're not doing it because we, can, we think that if we say, Jesus, this is for you enough, then Jesus will like us. Or if we say, Jesus, this is for you, then maybe God will keep liking us. 
We say to everything that we do, Jesus, this is for you, because Jesus took everything he had, which is far more than we can ever have, and he said, sinner, this is for you. It's gratitude, my friends. That's why Paul says, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Christ-motivated living is grateful living. It's grateful living in our relationships because we let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. It's grateful living in our communication because we let the message about Jesus have a royal residence in our hearts. And it's grateful living because everything we do, whether in word or deed, we do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through him. So what motivates you? Is it guilt? Is it pride? Is it an attempt to validate yourself? Nothing, nothing a true Christian ever does should be out of an attempt to say, I hope I could win favor with God. No, everything that we do as believers is flowing from our life with Jesus Christ, not in an attempt to gain a life in Jesus Christ. It's, that's, the, the word for that is gratitude. And this is no surprise that Paul mentions gratitude at this point in the letter because that's precisely what he had mentioned at the, this central appeal. Remember, I've said again and again that the central appeal of the book of Colossians is this. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And then it goes on. Abounding therein with what? Thanksgiving. And he mentions it again in this letter. Why? Because a Christ-motivated life is a grateful life. Now, I may be speaking to someone and you're just, you're new to this thought about the gospel or Christianity or Christian faith. And when I talk about something that God has done for you, that your impulse is, I want to be worthy of that. In fact, that's often how we feel when someone does something really nice for us. Our impulse is, is to say, I, I want to deserve that somehow. And if we feel like we don't deserve it, then our next impulse is, uh, um, maybe I, I can pay it forward or, or pay it back somehow go out to lunch with someone and they, they, they pay for our lunch, we'll say, I'll get you next time. We feel like God has done something for us or he's offering us something and, and our impulse is to say, I'll, I'll, I'll get you next time. I think that if you feel that way, which is very normal, maybe peel back the layer just a little bit and ask why. Because we are indebted to somebody and if we're indebted to someone, we're under their control. And we don't want to be controlled by somebody. And we feel fearful if we're under someone's control. Let me ask you this. How will our indebtedness not create fear? Only if the one in whose debt we are loves us. And what greater proof of God's love for us could be given than when he sent his son Jesus to die for us? There is no fear in love, for perfect love casts out fear. And that produces gratitude. And my friend, if you have never put your trust in Jesus Christ, if that for you is a light bulb moment to think it is something that God is offering me that I can never stand in a posture of having deserved or, or, or ambitious to earn somehow, that for you, my friend, you must receive the gift of salvation by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I may be speaking to someone who you've gone to church here for many, many months or even years and, and you've always conceived of the gospel as something that's fundamental that you move past and now you begin to earn that or somehow be worthy of that and you're realizing, no, it's all my good works are as filthy rags. Anything I do is just an overflowing of my gratitude. It could be that you need to embrace the gospel for the first time. Oh, don't be ashamed to do that. And if it is a first time for you, you're hearing this, you're unfamiliar with the claims of Christianity, my friend, learn more. Speak with one of us after the service. And don't leave this place until you know for sure that you are trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Christ-motivated living is grateful living. Let's bow our heads. Life gets so busy, it's so noisy, there's so many distractions. Sometimes this moment here at the end of a service may be the quietest, most important moment of reflection that you'll have this week. So don't waste it. And think carefully, my believing friend, my brother, my sister, oh, does the gospel have a rich dwelling in your life? Is there any closet drawer, room, basement, cellar, that you're not letting that most incredible message invade and have a rich dwelling. Oh, open that up and give the message about Jesus the richest dwelling it deserves. And when you do, talk to others about it. Teach it and admonish them. Is the peace of Christ ruling your heart? Are you allowing that radically selfless mindset of Jesus Christ to be the umpire in your relationship with others? And in everything, whether in word or deed, are you doing it in the name of Jesus, abounding in thanksgiving?